a new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It was a little after 9 a.m. on Saturday, July 15th, 1995. Joseph Lasco was already sweating as he huddled next to a small card table in his apartment on the northwest side of Chicago, he glanced over his daily calendar. He used it to keep a meticulous record of the daily temperature forecasts and major events from the newspaper, dutifully crossing out each day as it passed. He looked at the notations for the 12th, 13th, and 14th. Each temperature was over 90 degrees. His pencil hovered over today's entry, 94 degrees. The humidity made the air feel like it was over 100. And it felt even hotter in the overstuffed apartment. Joseph had mounds of discarded mail and newspapers, junk electronics, and heaps of trash everywhere. He rarely opened the window and only had a small fan to circulate air. The temperature outside rose above the predicted 94 degrees, reaching 98. The next day, the heat index would spike over 100. Joseph's calendar entry on July 15th would be the last one he would ever make. By the end of the day, he was dead. The 1995 Chicago heat wave had claimed another victim. There would be over 700 more fatalities that weekend. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Bill. Every Thursday, we'll explore moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second and final episode on the deadly heat wave that struck Chicago in July of 1995. Over the course of five days, the extreme temperatures killed more than 700 people, leaving an infamous scar in the city's history. Last week, we discussed the buildup to the disaster. Segregated neighborhoods and understaffed emergency services were a recipe for trouble. 
This week, we'll hear about the terrible effects of the heat on the citizens of Chicago. We'll also follow the Herculean efforts of rescue workers to save the lives of their fellow citizens. Temperatures peaked at 104 degrees on Thursday, July 13th. This was the hottest single day of the heat wave, but the extreme temperatures continued for another two days. It was during the weekend of July 14th through the 16th that the highest number of fatalities occurred. This exponential spike in deaths was likely due to the victim's prolonged heat exposure. The human body begins to succumb to heat after about 48 hours. The heat wave set in on Wednesday, so by Friday morning, the most vulnerable citizens of Chicago were dying. Emergency vehicles were lining up on the streets outside the county morgue. Chief Medical Examiner Edmund Donahue was overwhelmed. There were over 50 deaths that he had to examine, and more bodies kept coming in. The bodies arrived in ambulances, police cars, and private cars. Funeral homes and hospitals used minivans to transport corpses, but soon there was nowhere to put them. A local meatpacking firm loaned the morgue nine refrigerated semi-trailers. They were painted bright red and yellow, easily distinguishable as they moved through traffic. Workers stacked bodies inside the refrigerated trailers on the way to the coroner's office to keep them from decomposing. Linda Ray Murray, a former chief medical officer for the Chicago Department of Health, recalled the moment she heard the county morgue had run out of space to store the dead. There had been no announcements on the news, no discussion from the city. But the minute you see in the paper that there were refrigerated trucks, that was enough. Right there, you know you were in trouble. The sad irony was not lost on the medical examiner's staff and the first responders. If these victims had air conditioning a few hours earlier, they might still be alive. Instead, their corpses would be stored inside the cold refrigerated trucks for another three weeks. Across the city, the heat was wreaking havoc on infrastructure. Large swaths of the city had lost power, and water pressure was low in many neighborhoods due to thousands of opened fire hydrants. Worse yet, the drawbridges spanning the Chicago River were threatening to lock closed in the high temperatures. The prolonged heat was beginning to warp the metal plates that allowed them to raise and lower. If the bridges locked, there could be a disaster on the river. Boats might slam into them. City workers hosed water onto the bridge to cool down the hot steel. Back in the city, asphalt roads softened and buckled under the intense sun. The hot tar caved in and holes opened up in the middle of traffic lanes. Houses and apartment complexes made of brick absorbed the heat like ovens, and the temperatures inside these buildings rose to over 120 degrees, even with open windows and fans to circulate air. But people were still staying indoors. The south side of the city had high crime rates, and people felt they had to choose between staying safe inside and staying cool outdoors. Late in the morning on Friday the 14th, Valerie Brown called her grandmother, Alberta Washington. She didn't answer. That was unusual. Alberta was always at home. 
Valerie quickly made her way to her grandmother's apartment. When she arrived, she found the door was already open. The paramedics were inside. She rushed into the bedroom. The paramedics were standing over her grandmother's body. Alberta was lying face up on her bed, completely still. Valerie watched them take Alberta's body out of the bedroom. She said, when they were examining her body, I looked over at the window and it was nailed shut. And I thought, what about putting a nail in this window would make her feel safe? Why wasn't this window open? Alberta had believed a burglar might come in the window if they found it open. And at her age, she would be defenseless against an intruder. But the closed window that was supposed to keep her safe had in fact led to her death. Valerie said, I walked to the ambulance and I looked in and I saw these bodies in there. And they just laid her on top of the other bodies like she was a cord of wood. And then I thought, does that mean they're going to go get other bodies and lay them on top of my grandmother? Alberta's body was brought to the medical examiner's office where it joined the others lying in the refrigerated trucks. Mike McReynolds was one of the intake supervisors on duty at the morgue. He said, I was at the medical examiner's office for a solid week. They were doing autopsies very nearly around the clock. Maureen Finn, a forensic scientist working on the autopsies, remembered the long days as well. She said, you almost had to run a gauntlet to walk through anywhere to avoid touching a tray that held a body. It looked like a war zone. When a funeral home arrived to collect a body, there was nobody available to help them find the correct corpse. The funeral home workers had to search the trucks themselves. Cheryl Gatling was one of these workers. She said, I had to get up in the truck and there were maybe 80 or 100 remains or more. So I had to check toe tags until we could find them. Sometimes there were a couple people on top and you had to move them over. It had an emotional effect on all of us. We couldn't sit and cry with the family there. We had to maintain our professionalism. The temperature hit 100 degrees by mid-afternoon on the 14th. Power failures began to sweep the city as the electrical grid was overloaded by so many air conditioners, fans, and refrigerators. The power lines couldn't handle the massive surge and the transformers and substations failed. By the end of the day, over 40,000 homes were without electricity. This meant that even people who had air conditioners to keep cool couldn't use them. For most people, the power outages removed their only defense against hyperthermia. As the blackout continued and the temperatures rose inside, people began to overheat. Mike Herzich was a freelance news videographer, gathering clips and stories from around the city about the power outages and heat wave fatalities. In the late afternoon, he arrived at a single room occupancy building called the Tokyo Hotel. Mike had heard over the emergency scanner that paramedics were called to attend two victims simultaneously at the hotel. One of them was in the throes of a heart attack when paramedics arrived. The other victim was already dead. The paramedics had put the body in a thick black rubber body bag and strapped it to a gurney to be loaded into an ambulance. 
Mike said he was DOA from the heat. The windows were all closed. There wasn't even a fan in the window. They brought him out and took him to the medical examiner. Unfortunately, this was a sight I saw often, but usually victims of homicides, not from heat. Dr. Kenneth Perlman was concerned about the increasing number of DOA and critical victims. He was a physician at Northwestern Memorial Hospital on the north side of the city, and he recalled seeing patients come in with body temperatures of 108 degrees. Dr. Perlman said, I'm not sure everybody took this heat wave seriously. People should know that a heat wave over 100 degrees can be every bit as dangerous as cold weather with a wind chill of minus 60. Brain damage can result when the body's temperature remains so high for a prolonged period. In addition, the heart is overworked, trying to cool the body with increased blood flow. People with high blood pressure are then in serious danger. Emergency room doctors often administer fluids intravenously and douse patients with cold water. This treatment is very effective at lowering body temperatures quickly and rehydrating patients to allow the body to cool itself further. But many emergency rooms were closed to new patients by Friday night. When an emergency room is unable to accommodate more patients arriving by ambulance, the hospital status is said to be on bypass. At various times during the 72-hour period when the heat was at its worst, 23 out of Chicago's 45 hospitals were on bypass. These hospitals had reached, and in some cases exceeded, their capacity for emergency care. They were forced to turn away dozens of ambulances with patients in urgent need of help. Many heat stroke and hyperthermia fatalities can be prevented with immediate treatment. But during the heat wave, victims perished in ambulances that were forced to drive from hospital to hospital before finding an open emergency room. Deputy Chief Paramedic Robert Skates was listening to his emergency radio in horror on the afternoon of Friday the 14th. He was responsible for monitoring all emergency services on the south side of Chicago. He couldn't believe the city hadn't instituted a recall. A city recall would have mandated that all off-duty firefighters and paramedics report to their station for emergency assignments. This is a common response during catastrophes to expand the city's emergency response capability. But two days into the heat wave, City Hall had not issued the order. Skates knew the city could have brought in another 15 ambulances from their reserve fleet. If they called upon the city suburbs for help, another 70 ambulances would have been at their disposal. There was also an emergency stockpile of sterile potable water that could be used to cool off and rehydrate victims before they succumbed to the heat. Skates was livid about the inaction. He called up the chain of command to sound the alarm about the massive influx of heat victims. But nobody would take his call. The fire commissioner was out of town on vacation. The deputy commissioner didn't believe the crisis was as bad as Skates was saying. The higher-ups weren't hearing the radio calls from ambulances, saying that patients were in critical condition or that firefighters had broken down a locked door and found another dead victim. Skates finally got the deputy commissioner on the phone one last time. The commissioner said, 
Stop being so paranoid, Bob. I'm not going to do a recall. As the hot sun finally set on the 14th, the death toll was nearing 300. The news carried the terrible stories of elderly victims and children dying in the heat. The public outcry finally got the attention of City Hall. On the morning of Saturday, July 15th, the penultimate day of the heat wave, Mayor Daley and his city administration finally declared a heat emergency in the city of Chicago. But it came far too late for hundreds of victims. Next, we'll hear about the gruesome discoveries that continued for days and the citywide relief that came as the extreme temperatures finally broke. Now, back to the story. On Saturday, July 15, 1995, the Chicago heat wave was nearing its end. The heat index only reached 105 degrees, down from the highs of 119 and 116 from the previous two days. However, the death toll was still climbing. Over at the Chicago Tribune, a veteran reporter named George Papajohn had received a list of confirmed deaths from the medical examiner's office. He knew something wasn't right. He said to another reporter, if this many people are being brought to the morgue, who knows how many are out there waiting to be discovered? Papa John and fellow reporter Lou Carlozo headed out toward the apartments where victims had been found. Carlozo said there was an apartment building and this woman had lived on the top floor. When I got there, it was blazing hot. I went in the building. It had to be easily 120, 130 degrees in there. As the reporters gathered stories of victims who had succumbed in cramped, overheated apartments, the police reports continued to pile up. Officers were performing welfare checks on people who hadn't been heard from in days. Some callers described terrible smells coming from beneath their neighbors' doors. In these cases, officers often had to forcibly enter apartments to find a decomposing body. They took notes of the scene to help with the medical examiner's investigations. The goal was to determine a cause of death and find a way to notify next of kin. A 65-year-old man was found in full rigor mortis on the floor of his bedroom. He hadn't been seen or heard from since the 13th. The police officers could find no trace of the victim's relatives. A 73-year-old woman was found dead by her son. She hadn't left her apartment in 10 years, and the police officers found the thermostat registering over 90 degrees. None of the windows were open, and she had no fan or air conditioning. A 79-year-old man was found decomposing on his sofa with numerous flies on the body and a terrible, strong odor emanating from the apartment. The landlord had never seen anyone visit the victim. These stories became common as more heat wave victims were found. More than half were over 55 years old, and many of them died alone in small, unventilated apartments without any friends or family to notice. The newspapers investigated this morbid trend. One article said, 
You'd have to be crazy, suicidal, or homeless these days to spend a night sleeping in a park or on a porch. It seemed that, for many, the danger of the indoors was preferable to the dangers of the outside. In order to provide a third, better choice, the city opened five cooling centers. These were large municipal buildings with air conditioning made available to the public. But very few people were using them. A lack of information meant many didn't know the centers were open. And in the case of the elderly, most weren't fit to travel across the city anyway. Others wouldn't leave for fear their homes would be robbed while they were gone. The Meals on Wheels program brought ice to as many people as they could, but the program had a limited number of vehicles and volunteers. Meanwhile, the mayor's office sent out 30 workers to check on elderly residents. Church groups and community clubs set up phone banks to contact vulnerable residents in their area. But as we've seen, many of these efforts were too little too late. The city government claimed that no one could have predicted the large number of deaths, even with an emergency plan. Mayor Daly said, we have to look at these statistics that people die every day in Chicago. You cannot claim that everybody who has died died of heat. Then everybody in the summer that dies will die of heat. He then said that people died when their family did not check on them and that the community was responsible for keeping people safe during a heat wave. But the reality was that the city was woefully under-equipped to deal with the disaster. Chicago's 911 emergency line received more than 15,000 calls a day from Thursday through Saturday, as opposed to the normal 10 or 11,000. The number of 911 calls on Thursday, the hottest day of the heat wave, set a record for the highest number of daily calls since tracking began the decade before. Even the paramedics and firefighters knew the system was broken. Pete O'Sullivan, a paramedic and leader in the Chicago Firefighters Union, said, When you get an ambulance traveling halfway across the city to deliver a patient, it's ridiculous. It's like a domino effect. It throws the whole system out of kilter. By the afternoon of Saturday the 15th, there was no longer any doubt that Chicago was reeling from a catastrophe. 18 hospitals were still on bypass. The fire department and paramedics had brought almost 3,000 patients to the emergency rooms. While only a few of those victims had died, there were still thousands more calling 911. 80-year-old Pauline Jankowitz wasn't too worried about the heat. She had an air conditioner in her third-floor apartment on Chicago's northeast side. Pauline lived alone, but she had a pair of friends she called her phone buddies. They lived within a few blocks of each other and made sure to call several times a week to check in. But her apartment was still dangerously hot. The air conditioner was an old model and didn't work very well. One of Pauline's phone buddies reminded her that it was important to get outside if she became too hot indoors. So she went down to a local grocer that had air conditioning. She wanted to buy some fresh cherries. They were her favorite fruit and a rare treat when she ventured outside. When she returned to her building, she had to climb the stairs back to her apartment. There was no elevator. 
As she made her way up, she began to feel her hands going numb and swelling. Then the sensation spread to the rest of her body. Pauline barely made it back inside her apartment, where she immediately called one of her phone buddies. She said, I asked my friend to stay on the line, but I put the phone down and lied down. A few minutes later, with the phone still resting on the floor and her friend on the line, Pauline was able to soak some towels in cool water and wrap her head and body. Then she picked up the phone and thanked her friend for waiting. She was feeling better already. Pauline had narrowly avoided an emergency and proved that quick treatment could alleviate the symptoms of heat exhaustion. But many people didn't have phone buddies or air conditioning or even reliable water. Pauline knew she was lucky, and she said, it was the closest I've come to death. Viola Cooper was another Chicago resident who barely survived. Viola was 70 years old in 1995 and lived in extreme poverty. She lived in a basement apartment that cost over half of her monthly pension income. When the heat wave struck, she had just returned from an eight-day stay in intensive care at her local hospital. She was bitten by a rabid rat while she slept, and the bite became infected. Viola lived alone and far from her church. She only avoided severe heat exposure due to a public housing agency relocating her. Pauline and Viola were only two examples of nearly 110,000 elderly Chicago residents who lived alone during the heat wave. Many of the victims that would be discovered in the coming days had not been so lucky. As night fell in Chicago on Saturday the 15th, the widespread consequences of the heat wave were coming to light. So many bodies were being discovered that police patrols were recruited to transport them to the county morgue. Some of the refrigerated trucks at the morgue were already full, and radio calls were coming in saying there were over 17 emergency vehicles waiting in line to deliver bodies. The last time the morgue was so overwhelmed was when American Airlines Flight 191 had crashed at O'Hare Airport in May 1979. The heat wave had already exceeded the number of victims from that plane crash. By the end of the day, the official heat wave death toll would reach 269. There was no coordination between the fire department, City Hall, and the Department of Health. The city's emergency response descended into chaos. Andy Nabel, a newscaster on ABC7, reported, the chief medical examiner tells us tonight that at least 50 bodies await examination tomorrow. The number of heat-related deaths continues to grow. They're now discovering the bodies that were dead on Thursday and Friday as they begin to decompose. The extreme temperatures had wreaked havoc for days, and the chaos still wasn't over. In fact, by the time all the bodies were counted, it would become the deadliest weather event in Chicago history. Next, we'll hear about the continued search for victims and whether a similar disaster could happen again today. Now, back to the story. 
After the 1995 heat wave descended on Chicago from July 12th to July 16th, emergency services were overwhelmed. The enormous demand for electricity to power air conditioners had blown out transformers across the city, plunging many neighborhoods into blackouts. The death toll spiked over the weekend as homes across the city were left without power. By Sunday, July 16th, temperatures had dropped to around 93 degrees and the heat would continue to diminish in the coming days. The disaster was over. However, many victims who had already perished were yet to be discovered. The chief medical examiner, Edmund Donahue, was keeping a running tally of heat wave deaths. He appeared at a press conference on Monday the 17th to relay the deadly news. Saturday morning I came in and we had 87 cases. Sunday morning we had 83 cases and today we have 117. Our average is 17 deaths a day. We are seeing excess mortality. When the news stories broke and the public realized that hundreds of people had died from the heat, Mayor Daley and the rest of City Hall feared they would be blamed for the delay in declaring an emergency. As more bodies were found, the calls started flooding in to the public administrator's office. In 1995, the public administrator was a lawyer named Louis Apostle. He had been appointed by the governor and oversaw dozens of investigations into unclaimed bodies after the heat wave. In a typical week, the office looked at 25 to 30 possible investigations to pursue. But the week after the heat wave, 125 cases came through the office's door. The county investigators returned to the death sites to try and find any evidence of family or friends. They also looked for any assets the deceased may have had that could be used to pay for funeral and burial services. Many times, the investigations were quick. A family member's name and contact information was found, or they had no family, but they did have valuables that could be used to pay for a funeral. But if there were no obvious clues, then investigators had to dig deeper. Terry Drennan was the chief investigator in 1995. He worked with a partner named Toby Kuharski. When they went to work, Terry and Toby had to wear pants without cuffs so that cockroaches didn't fall in and get stuck. The apartments they entered were often unsanitary and full of trash and junk. They visited a West Side flop house called K&K Rooms the week after the heat wave to investigate three separate victims who had died there. The flop house rented single rooms with no amenities and interior facing windows for around $165 a month. Their tenants were almost exclusively men over 50. One victim was a man named Edward Cheshlack. He was overweight and around 70 years old when he died. He had taped shut the only window in his small apartment and was found dead on the floor next to his bed. Terry and Toby started by searching the closet. It was full of old flannel shirts, unwashed and worn with holes. They stank terribly. The manager of the building, John Flynn, said, Edward never took a shower. He just washed his hands and ran a rag across his chest. Then, in one of the shirt sleeves, Terry found an envelope stuffed with bills. The cash totaled over $2,800. It was enough to pay for a funeral. 
This was a rare find for the two investigators. They visited two more boarding houses that week, investigating another half dozen heat wave victims. One of the victims had left a handwritten will saying he wanted to donate his cadaver to science. But Terry knew that would be impossible. The victim had been too decomposed when he was found. As the week wore on, more questions arose as the disaster received public attention. On July 18th, renowned journalist Mike Royko wrote in the Chicago Tribune, the difference between heat waves of the past and the one of 1995 is that when poor Gramps croaked in those days, nobody got to see him being wheeled into the morgue on the 10 o'clock news. By July 20th, the number of heat-related deaths had reached 436. The public was paying attention to the death toll as it climbed. The mayor's office was promising new investigation into the city's emergency response failures, but that wasn't enough. People wanted to know why so many Chicago residents died on the south and west sides, the poorest regions of the city. Why hadn't the city done anything to help? Police officer David Cavazos remembered the absurdity of some of the solutions the city suggested in the early days of the heat wave. He said, people were told, go to the mall. And I was like, are you kidding me? This neighborhood doesn't have a mall. By the end of July, Chief Medical Examiner Edmund Donahue concluded that 550 Chicagoans had perished from the heat, with the vast majority being on the south side. The catastrophic heat wave had revealed a sociological disaster in the city. The segregation of communities by race and economic status left large areas of the city vulnerable. After the heat wave, the city government would spend millions of dollars on a new emergency plan to make up for this disparity. Over the years, Chicago has implemented several measures to prepare for natural disasters. In 1995, the city's Office of Emergency Management and Communications brought fire and police dispatchers together into the same call center to centralize emergency responses. Today, the OEMC building combines emergency dispatchers, 311 operators, traffic management authorities, and public infrastructure workers in one consolidated office. The 311 hotline now allows people to call City Hall directly and report concerns about neighbors or make the city aware of faulty water supplies or electricity. Gary Schenkel, the executive director of the Office of Emergency Management, explained how the synchronous efforts allow the city to see impending threats in real time and mobilize resources immediately. He said, we now have the ability to see the big picture. So if power goes out in a critical area, for example, one with a lot of senior housing, we can get the electric company to those areas first. Schenkel also described the cooling buses that circulate around the city for senior citizens who might be afraid to go outside. Also, family members from other cities can call 311 if they're concerned for the welfare of a Chicago resident. Corey Franklin, the director of intensive care at Cook County Hospital, noted that the public was not aware of the danger of heat waves in 1995. The last prolonged stretch of extreme temperatures had struck 40 years before, in 1955. He said, the danger of heat is something people have to relearn every generation. 
After the city expanded its response capability, there were relatively few deaths in subsequent heat waves in 1999, 2003, and 2012. The 1995 heat wave ranks as the most deadly in Chicago's history and one of the most deadly natural disasters to ever strike the Midwest. A comprehensive study done by the Chicago Health Department in September of 1995, nearly a month after the heat wave, concluded that 733 Chicagoans had died from the extreme temperatures. 41 of those victims were never claimed by family or friends. Their bodies were buried in a mass grave and their belongings boxed up and put on a shelf in a city archive. They died alone and forgotten. The city learned a terrible lesson from this silent killer. And while the macabre consequences of the heat wave ensured Chicago would not be caught off guard again, many cities are still underprepared for a heat disaster. This is concerning, especially considering that heat waves strike all over the country almost every year. A heat wave starts with little fanfare. There are no dark clouds or flashes of lightning. But as we've seen, the right combination of atmospheric events, poor city planning, and understaffed emergency services can have deadly consequences. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on the 1995 Chicago heat wave, amongst the numerous sources we used, we found Heat Wave by Eric Kleinenberg to be extremely helpful in our research. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Natural Disasters from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Andrew Messer with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Bill Thomas and Kate Leonard. <laughs>